Hey, good morning. My name is Brian, and uh, I get to be on staff here at Highland Park, and so glad that you could be with us today. In your bulletin, there's a sermon page that might be helpful for you as we follow along. We've been in uh, the series studying the, the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, and we've been dealing with this stuff that kind of flips everything we thought upside down. Things like love your enemies. I mean, that is upside down stuff. Uh, forgive. That's upside down stuff. Last week, we, uh, we kind of looked at the, at the Lord's Prayer as a template for our prayer life, and hopefully that's been helpful to you. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we had a snow day, and so we got just a little bit out of order. We're going to come back to the end of chapter 6 in a few weeks, but we're going to begin in chapter 7 today in this really tough topic of judging. Like, what do we do with that? Because we hear stuff kind of all over the map. We hear things like, hey, don't judge me, almost kind of like in a whiny way. Nobody can judge me. I can do whatever I want. Just leave me alone. Uh, in other words, let me walk off a cliff and just let me be, kind of you know, almost in that. But then we also hear stuff of people judging people harshly and actually push the, pushing them off the cliff of like, yeah, you're less than me. Uh, there you go. Feel that. And so there's all of this stuff around judging and thankfully, the scripture gives us some clarity there that we're going to dive into today. And so today's really going to be some teaching about what God has in mind for us when it comes to this tough subject of judging. Who should I judge and how should that be? And what is Jesus talking about here? And so uh, before we go any farther, I just want to stop and, and we want to give our attention to the text in Matthew chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to the pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Let's pray. God, would you just open our hearts to receive from you uh, what you want to feed us and give us this morning through your word. Uh, this, this subject of being judgmental and judging others is tough for us. It's tough for our world. And so, God, we ask for your clarity that you would change us and change some of our instincts and just flip them upside down so that they match what you have in store for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love this text. I mean, if you like comedy, you should love this. I mean, of all of the Sermon on the Mount, this is where Jesus just kind of gets funny. I mean, he, 
talking about plank in your own eye and would you give your kid a snake, you know, for lunch, toss a live snake on their plate. I mean, Jesus is going for a few laughs, but he wants to get across the point. <clears throat> so he exaggerates just a little bit and he has some fun with that. Don't miss that when Jesus spoke, sometimes there was a smile on his face. Sometimes he's saying, hey, I mean, come on, really, let's think about this. And so I love that Jesus has that. I wish we could, we you had the video of him teaching this text right here. But I have a problem with this text. The problem is that being judgmental is so much fun. I mean, right? I mean, for me to feel like I'm better than you, it just feels good, right? It's why we do that. It's the human instinct to be judgmental because I'm up here and you're down here and you stay down here. And if I step on you, it makes me feel a little bit taller. Oh, I know that doesn't last very long, but just for a few moments, it's so tempting to want to be judgmental. And Jesus knew we would have a problem with this. He knew people did at the time have a problem with this. So the first thing we need to kind of talk about here is that word judging. When Jesus says don't judge, what is he saying? Well, that word can mean a lot of different things. In Jesus' day, that word could mean lots of different things. And even in the Bible, it's used in a few different ways. Because on one hand, you could be gently correcting someone whom you care about and saying, hey, hey, son, don't do that anymore. Don't run out into the road. Are, are we talking about that? Or is it this harsh condemnation of someone saying, yeah, you know, basically, I, I don't care if you go to hell. In fact, that's kind of where I want you to go. I don't care about your soul. So what is it? Well, when we look at the passage here, Jesus, it says, how you judge others, it will be judged to you. And it talks about measuring. How you measure, it will be measured to you. So Jesus is talking about the second extreme, the condemnation of saying, you don't get to sit on the judgment chair. You don't get to decide someone's fate, their eternity. You are not to judge in that sense. And so when, when Jesus is talking about judging here in Matthew 7, he's talking about the condemning, I send you and decide your eternity, and, and I have the right to do whatever I want. And Jesus says, that's the kind of judging I'm talking about here that you are not to do. We come back to this uh, idea that's been all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Imago Dei, image of God. All people are created in the image of God. So we stand on equal footing with our fellow man. However, just because we're made in the image of God doesn't mean we get to take on all of God's responsibilities, like being judge of the world, right? There's a difference there. In John chapter 7, verse 24, it says, Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. So how do we judge correctly? Well, there, there's several different movements of the heart where God wants to take us from where we kind of can be to where Jesus wants us to be. And this morning, I just want to kind of walk you through how God wants to kind of take our heart and turn it upside down from where it may have been to where God wants it to be. And the first is this. Jesus wants to take us from paranoid, control-seeking to peaceful trust. In James chapter 4, he writes, There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? In other words, you're nobody to judge your neighbor. You don't have the right to condemn someone else. There's this great story in 1 Samuel 24. Uh, Saul is the king, and he's gone kind of mad 
Actually, he's gone very mad. And a lot of his madness was directed towards David. David was very popular, and Saul was very jealous of David's popularity. And so even though David had only served and been kind to Saul, Saul was trying to kill him. So David and his little band of brothers is running for their lives. I mean, we're thinking several dozen people here, not a lot of people at this time. Sometimes it got larger than that. But at this point, a very small group of people. Saul, on the other hand, has 3,000 soldiers chasing David through the countryside. At one point, Saul's on one side of the mountain and David is on the other side of the mountain and they're both running. And it ends up that David and his, his guys get into this cave and they're hiding. Well, it just so happens that Saul needs to use the restroom. And guess which cave he chooses? He goes in the very cave where David and his guys are hiding in the very back. He has no idea David is in there. And so I don't know exactly how using the restroom happened in the ancient days with the robes and maybe taking the robe off or whatever, but Saul is there and David sneaks up on Saul where the robe is and he takes his knife out and he cuts a little piece of fabric out of the robe and sneaks back. And I'm just like, that is awesome that a guy could be that sneaky. Um, So give it to David. And his guys are saying like, David, kill him. You can kill him. God's delivered him right into your hand. See? Sometimes when something works our way, we assume that God is saying, okay, you can do whatever you want to them now. But David's like, no, 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 I can't kill him. I can't kill him. And David waits until Saul leaves and kind of gets down the mountain as a safe distance away. And David comes out and yells down, hey, Saul, recognize this? It comes from your robe. And Saul looks and sees it does. It's part of his robe. And David says, I'm just going to really paraphrase here. I could have killed you. My guys wanted me to kill you. But that's God's job, to be the eternal judge. I can't do it because God has you in this place for a reason, and I'm angry with you, and you should knock it off, and you should quit, and I hope that God judges you for what you're doing. I hope he judges you correctly, but that's not my job, so I did not kill you. And Saul is overwhelmed with gratitude. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'll quit chasing you. And he does for a very short time. And then he starts chasing him and trying to kill him again. But David has this incredible perspective that it's not his job to be the ultimate judge. He can be upset. He can grieve. He can lament. But it's not his job to be the final judge. And instead, that brings him a peace rather than trying to control everything and all of the outcomes. It's incredible. The second way that God wants to move us is from harsh criticism of others to gentle correction of our own. So 1 Corinthians 5 is kind of the key passage here that you could just dig into and spend lots of time. But in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And he says this, Judge those inside the church doesn't mean harshly. In fact, we read throughout the New Testament, when you correct someone, when you discipline someone, you do so gently with the hope of restoring them and correcting them and saying, hey, I'm concerned about this behavior in here, and that's not okay with God, and can I help you? Uh, in, let's have some confession and some repentance and turn your life around so that you begin treating your family this way, or you treat your friend this way, or you have an attitude towards God that's humble, but I want to help you with this. That's what we do to those inside the church, helping each other, right? That's accountability. That's the good judging. But in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, 
but you have no business even trying to do that to those outside the church. Hmm. So Paul's saying, even in the good part of judging, not the condemning, harsh part, that we worry about that with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not our job to criticize and point out all of the sins of those outside the church. Well, why is that? Because if we do that, what do we do? We push people away from us, right? Let me give you an example, actually several examples, because it amazes me how if you took this principle, you could lay it over all of these different places in society, and it works. It's still true. For instance, would a company be better off if they spent all of their time criticizing their competitors or if they spent their time correcting their own mistakes? The second one. Would a family be better off if they spent all of their time always making fun of their neighbors or making themselves better? The second. Would a team be better off if they spent all of their time trash-talking their opponent so much that they didn't do anything else or running sprints and doing drills to get themselves better? Okay, here's where we take the little leap that it gets a little painful for us. Would a political party be better off if they spent all of their time talking about how the other one is so terrible or actually making their own political party a little bit better. I mean, when was the last time that happened? And I think that we see in our culture these two political parties that spend almost all of their time saying, look how bad they are, and they spend very little time saying, hey, we should kind of tighten things up a little bit in our own ship. And so what has happened the polarization, because that's what happens when you criticize somebody who's the other, when you criticize somebody who's not your own. Now, I'm saying all that not to have a political sermon, but to say this. God's word is so true and so good all of the time. It is amazing. It's like, okay, we can apply this all kinds of places, and it works. And as important as the political component is for our country today, it's not near as important as the spiritual lesson for the church. Because what happens when the church is critical of all of the unchurched? We've kind of done that, and we've seen what happens. Too often, uh, churches have been so critical and loud voice and yelling against the unchurched that it pushes the unchurched further away from them and thus ever having the opportunity to hear the gospel that God loves them. And so Jesus is saying, hey, uh, you, you hold each other accountable. Help yourselves follow me, but, but don't be harsh and criticizing and yelling at the people who aren't following me yet. You're just making my work harder when you do that, so knock it off. It's a beautiful principle, and you can lay it out anywhere, and it works. It's the beauty of Scripture. It's true in all things. Then there's this tricky little part at the, at the end of this section where Jesus is, says, don't give dogs what is sacred or uh, your pearls to the, to the pigs because they'll trample all over it and tear you up. And like, what, what does that mean? There's lots of different ideas about what that means, and we could probably spend a whole other uh, uh, sermon on that. But the, I think probably the best research indicates and, and has the idea that if somebody is not accepting of the truth, then you, you don't just keep handing it to them over and over and say, hey, you be the teacher of this. Well, you want somebody to teach the gospel who has embraced the gospel, not somebody who's going to tread on it underfoot. And so that kind of aligns with this kind of thought. 
Um, Scott McKnight says, we must learn to distinguish moral discernment from personal condemnation. And then John Wesley says, the judging that Jesus condemns here is thinking about another person in a way that is contrary to love. I, I really like that definition. So that really helps me. Am, am I thinking correctly about judging in this situation? So the question I need to quickly ask myself is, am I thinking about that person in terms of love? Because if I am, I'm probably on the right path. If I'm thinking about them in love, I'm trying to restore them and to help them and to come alongside them and to build them up and maybe even save them from something dangerous in front of them. But if, if my motivation is to get back at them or to feel better about myself or to show everybody how good I am compared to how bad they are or to win an argument, that's not out of love. And then Jesus wants to move us from shouting to praying. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher in the 1950s London, and he said this, Christians should never worry about their circumstance in this world because of their relationship to God. All through the Sermon on the Mount, we see the importance and the, the intensity of God's presence, that because God is with us, we don't have to be judging other people and condemning other people and trying to control all of these things. Instead, we pray. Because if your kid asks for a fish, none of you parents in here are going to slap a, a snake on their plate or give them a, a rock or a brick instead of a, a loaf of bread. Because you love your kids, and Jesus says your, your heavenly Father loves you. He's a good Father who wants to give you a good gift, who wants to care for your needs. And so instead of thinking, I need to control everything and judge everyone and be mad all the time, instead, we go to the Lord in prayer. We see that often in the life of David, just looking back on his life, where there was times where he was on the run and he could have just gone to this, this side of being judgmental and harboring hate towards Saul, and instead we see him go to the Lord. I mean, he's very honest in his prayers in the Psalms. Sometimes you're like, whoa, are you allowed to say that to God? You are. You're honest, but David always comes full circle at the end, and he's saying, but God, I still trust you. I still come to you regardless of how bad my situation is. I, I do want to say a word about these couple verses here of, of knock and ask and seek. And uh, we know that those who seek the Lord find the Lord. That, that God says, my arms are open to anybody. Now, I don't care where you're from. I don't care your past I understand about your sins, and they were terrible. That's why I had to die for you, but I still welcome you to me. If you come to me, I receive you. That's one of the great promises of Christianity, one of the great promises that we have, that regardless of your age, I have a great, 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 great grandfather, something like that, who was baptized at the age of 90. And, and that God doesn't care your age. He doesn't care the language you speak, your ethnic background, if you're rich or if you're poor. God says, if you seek me, you find me. God says, if you ask, it's going to be given. Sometimes that little phrase has been misused because we put ourselves on the judgment seat if we say, hey, whatever I ask, God has to give me, and he's got to give it to me right now on my timeline. And because I said it, you got to give it to me. we got to be careful there. Because when we read Jesus' life, there were times when the disciples prayed and it was not answered at that moment. And they came to Jesus confused. Hey, we prayed and it didn't, you know, what's going on? 
And we, we read throughout the New Testament, did people die for their faith? Yeah. I would guess that some of them were praying that they would not die right then. We still even see that today. Is there, are there times when, when God, in his infinite wisdom, doesn't answer our prayers exactly like we want or in the timing that we want? Absolutely. But because we trust him to be a fair and good judge, we still have faith. We don't pretend like we know that God has to give us everything. Instead, we pray and we trust. Jesus also wants to move us from condemnation to compassion. In ancient Israel, God empowered judges and kings to be the judge. But in this new kingdom, he sets up Jesus as the judge and says, because Jesus is judge, you don't need to be judging each other. Now, are there, are there still places for you know, legal entities in our society? Of course. But in, in God's kingdom, God says, I'll take care of this. It's not up for you to go running around judging everyone and feeling like that's all on you. Because the, the kingdom that Jesus is trying to build is not one of people pointing fingers at everybody else, but it's one of humility and gentleness and truth and restoration and kind correction. There's the story in Matthew chapter 9 where it says that Jesus goes out and he sees a crowd. And I, I want you just to notice what he did not do when he saw the crowd. When he saw the crowd, the text does not say that he rolled his eyes. Or he saw the crowd and was annoyed to no end. Or he saw the crowd and he noticed all of their shortcomings. Or he saw the crowd and so he gossiped to others about them. Or he blasted them on a megaphone. Or he just ignored them to wallow in their ignorance. Or he posted a picture of them on Facebook that was really demeaning and partially true. Now the text in Matthew 9 says, he saw the crowd and he had compassion on them. That was Jesus' instinct with people. I want to ask you, what's your instinct with people? Even with a crowd. And the crowds then are like the crowds today. They're full of people that can frustrate us. They're full of people who have no clue what they're doing. They're full of people that have made lots of mistakes. They're full of people that if you start helping them, oh man, where is the end? They're full of people who have hurt you. And Jesus' instinct is to have compassion. And when Jesus gets a hold of our hearts, he helps us move from this instinct of condemnation to this one of compassion. When we judge other people, judgmental, when we are like that with other people, without any intention to restore them to God's grace, we participate in evil. We do Satan's bidding for him. And Jesus wants to take us also from glaring at the sins of others to grieving over our own sins. Let me ask you, before you were a Christian, how did you respond when the Christians you knew would come up and tell you all about your sins and all your mistakes? That didn't go over very well, did it? It actually probably made it difficult for you. And maybe some people did that in loving ways that you could accept and you could understand as you talked with them. But for the people who were always nitpicking on you and saying um, this, 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 you probably responded one certain way. Okay, but maybe there were some times before you were a Christian when you noticed another Christian who was grieving their own sin or talking to you about how they needed to repent in their heart 
or the mistakes that they had. See, that would have struck you entirely different, right? That actually would have drawn you towards them, right? We are drawn towards people who say, yeah, I don't really have it all together. Uh, I'm still a a work in progress. God, I am just thankful for God's grace. That doesn't push anybody away. And, and so we need to go from this, ask, this attitude of, first, I need to let God be working on me. And so I have this humble attitude of, God, work on me, work on me, work on me. And Jesus tells this funny story, you know, imagine that somebody's got like a little speck in their eye, and you're walking around with like this big old stick of wood hanging out of your eye, saying, hey, can I help you? And of course, they're going to say like, no, get out of here. I don't, you, you can't touch my eyeball. One time in college, I was... Uh, running around, and um, I actually got a splinter in my eyeball. Um, yeah, the, what you're saying, that's how bad it hurt. Um, and uh, I had never had a splinter in my eyeball before, and I did not know of the correct medical things to do, but I knew when I got splinters in my hands, I would get tweezers and pull them out. And my friend Matt had hit several game-winning shots in high school, and I felt like he would have a steady hand. And so I was like, Matt, get the tweezers and pull the splinter out of my eyeball quick while I hold my eyelid open. And he did. Some of you are really squirming. You can't handle this. Um, but Matt successfully pulled the splinter out of my eyeball. It was fairly large, but I mean, for a splinter, but it was really, you know, pretty small. It was just like a little speck. It was just like a really little thing in my eyeball. It wasn't like a big piece of wood, but let me tell you, it mattered. It mattered when it was in my eyeball. Things were not good in that moment. And so even if you just have a speck, you know, you get a little piece of dust in your eyeball, it matters. Your whole world kind of shuts down right then if you get a, you know, dust that blows in your eye. You can't do anything. And so Jesus is saying, he's not saying, hey, if you've got little sins in your life, they don't matter. He's not saying that. In fact, he says, you just need to let God work on you with the big stuff in your life and the sins in your life. And whether you think it's big or small, let God work on you. And then, he says, you can see clearly enough to help other people with the, the specks that might be in their eyes. Because the specks still matter. See, God wants you to be able to help other people. He wants you to be able to go to fellow Christians and say, hey, can I help you in your prayer life? Can I help you as you share your faith with others? Can I help you in your serving? I know that you're struggling with anger. Can I come alongside you and help you? See, Christians, we need people to do that. And we need to not be so stubborn to always be like, no, I got it. I'm fine. While we got our eyes closed running into stuff. We need to welcome that because we grieve over our own sins. And so we welcome people to help us. We gladly hand the tweezers to other people and say, get this thing out of my eye. Help me with this. Romans says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone's got their specs. So we need God's help in all of this. The last thing I want to mention of how Jesus wants to move us is from grumpy to gracious. And that word grumpy is kind of a funny word. But the truth is that the judgmental attitude is a grumpy attitude. The, the, the grumpy attitude is it's everyone else's fault. It's your fault I'm having a bad day, and it's his fault that things went wrong, and just this grumpiness. And actually, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount and we look at the life of Jesus, we look at the New Testament, grumpiness is not just kind of like a bad personality trait. It's sin. Because God has called us to joy. 
and to kindness and to, to friendliness with other people and to love of other people. And you can't do that with grumpiness at all. It's, the, it's when we're grumpy, we're thinking, it's your fault, I'm better than you, and I wish you wouldn't have done this, and I can't believe everyone is so stupid all of the time. And the moment we're doing that, we're seated on at least pretending like we're seated on God's judgment chair, as if we're the one who's got it figured out, and everyone else, it's their fault that our lives are miserable. But instead, God comes to us and says, no, 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 you can't be grumpy, because you can't be grumpy and at the same time gracious. And when I say the word gracious, I'm not saying it just in a small way. Think of that word in its grandest form, that God's grace saved my life, and that God's grace saved your lives, that God's grace saved all of our lives, that God's grace is cosmic and global and stretches throughout time, and his grace is so large that we can't even comprehend it, and he has grace on me, and he comes and he saves me, and I deserved death, not only in this life, but I deserve death and the life to come. I deserved eternity separated from God, but God's grace came. That's the kind of graciousness I'm talking about. Because when we understand God's grace in our lives, how can I be grumpy at you? Because I'm so overwhelmed. It's as if somebody walked up to you when you left today in the lobby and they handed you a million dollars. You would be, you know, jumping around or maybe you'd be trying to leave really quick, quietly before anybody found out. Um, but, but maybe you'd be jumping around rejoicing and so glad that um, you, you walked outside and you noticed you had a little chip on your windshield. You wouldn't like go crazy about that little chip. You'd be like, oh, this is the worst day ever. Like, no, you can pay for it with a million dollars. And God comes and he has grace on us. We don't have any excuse to be grumpy in the rest of life. Instead, there should be a joy in us because of what God has done in us. This morning, I know that you come from different places and different spiritual places, and you've had different sorts of weeks, some up and some down, and your circumstances have been different. And I want to remind you that Jesus looks at you and he loves you. His first look at you is not one of condemnation. When God sees you, he does not like recoil away and say like, ah, I don't even want to look at that person. Instead, he looks at you and he wants to embrace you. He wants to love you. He wants you to walk with him not just today, but all of your days. He wants you to ask him so he can give you. He wants you to seek him so he can find you and he can be with you. God is a good God and he wants to be with you. And if any of you this morning are not walking with the Lord or maybe, maybe you've just had a really difficult week and you need someone to sit down and pray with you, then just quietly, we have places up here on the front row on both sides they're just designated where people can come during the next couple songs. And if you would like someone to pray with you, um, just quietly here and listen to you. Or, or maybe you want to talk about what it means to follow Jesus and to seek him and to be found and to know him. We would love to do that with you today. If you would like to just quietly study with someone later in the week, you can mark your Connect card that's in your bulletin or in the seat back in front of you. You can just mark that and, and drop that in the offering plates later on. Uh, but we want you to make a move because God has made his move towards you and he loves you and he cares for you and we want to be available to pray for you this morning or to talk to you about how you can follow him. Uh, if you would, would you stand up and just let me pray for us?
God, each and every one of us deserves condemnation in the harshest possible way. Just in honesty and in humility, we admit that right now. And yet, you offer grace, you offer forgiveness, you offer joy and hope and a future, you offer eternity. And so we say thank you. And we know that that needs to change our whole lives. So for those needing prayer, for those needing direction, for those needing help, pray they would seek it today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.